Amen. We're in 1 Samuel 13. Have you heard the saying, power corrupts? An absolute power corrupts absolutely? Okay. So there's this story by Plato. Long time ago, 4th century BC, way before J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's called The Ring of Gyges. You can look it up if you want. You can read it. And The Ring of Gyges is about this shepherd. He's the king's shepherd. He watches over the king's flock. And there's a bunch of them. And then one day there is this earthquake. And he's a good dude. He does things well. He's a decent guy. Works hard, provides all that kind of stuff. But one day there's this earthquake and this cave opens up. So he kind of explores it. And there's a tomb in there of this very large person who's now decomposed, but on his hand is a ring. And so he grabs, he lowers himself down, grabs the ring, puts it in his pocket. Well, later that night, he's around this fire with all the other shepherds and he decides to put the ring on and he disappears. Imagine that. (laughs) Where did Tolkien get the idea? But it's more than just him disappearing. He actually ceases to ever exist. Like the other shepherds are like, where'd that dude go? Where'd Gyges go? They just keep carrying on like he had never existed. And then he takes the ring off and he appears again. And it's like he had never disappeared. It's like this magical ring. Well, what happens in Gaiji's life is he starts to take advantage of that power. He starts to do little devious acts and take something here and do something there. And then eventually with the ring, he seduces the king's wife, the queen, and then kills the king. And the story is this. The moral of it is this. That power will often reveal what's already in your heart. See, Gyges couldn't do that stuff before because he didn't have the power to do it. But all of a sudden, when he got the power to do it, it unleashed something that was already in there. It gave him opportunity that he did not have before. So we can sometimes like look at people that sin magnificently and we're like, well, I would never sin like that. That may be true. But it may be that you just don't have the opportunities that they have to sin like that. And that's why you don't sin like that. And if you're put in the same situation, look out. If you had the power to sin that way, who knows what might be revealed in your heart. It's why Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into, because I don't know what my heart will do. Protect me from the ring of Gyges. Protect me from those circumstances because I don't want to go that way, right? So chapters 11 and 12, Saul steps into being king. He'd already been anointed, but we find him in chapter 11, still working the fields. He's not really being king yet. But then there's this battle against the snake king. Remember that? And he defeats the snake king. And all of a sudden, all of Israel is unified around Saul. Finally, he's got the power. So the question becomes, what's he going to do? He has an opportunity, I said last week, to pair with Samuel, this godly man, Saul being king, Samuel being the priest, the prophet, to pair with him in probably a way that would transform Israel. He could have done that. Will he do that? Or what will this ring of power they just got reveal in the heart? of Saul. So we're going to see that. Check it out. Chapter 13, verse 1. 
Saul lived for one year. That's when he's kind of tilling the land still, not really legitimately the king, and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years, he's just in for two years, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Revelation number one is this, Saul wants the praise. Did you notice that? So he gets this army together. He's got his son, Jonathan, and they split the army up. But is it 50-50? No. Saul gets 2,000. He puts 1,000 with his son, Jonathan, right? So are you kind of seeing like, hmm, that's interesting. And Jonathan, you're going to love Jonathan. The more you learn of Jonathan, he is one of the standouts of the Old Testament, right? So Jonathan now has an army and he's gonna use it. What are you going to notice as we see Jonathan? He uses, wow, I was dive-bombed by something right there, a hornet. Jonathan, he's a guy, if he has an army, he's going to use it. It's like the saying, when you've got a hammer in your hand, everything's a, a nail, right? That's why you do not give a hammer to a child, because you'll get nailed, literally, right? So Jonathan is like, if I've got an army then guess what? I'm going to use this army. So he attacks this place called Geba. Now, Geba is not on the border of Israel and the Philistine lands. Geba is like in the center. It's like Denver, Colorado. It's not El Paso. It's right in the center. And I think Jonathan was like, this is wrong. This is God's land. These uncircumcised Philistines cannot be here. So he gets his army, he fights them off, and he defeats them. And then Saul blows a trumpet. And what does Saul say? My son Jonathan won a great victory. What does he say? It was said, Saul blew a trumpet, and all Israel heard it say that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. His own son we're going to see this is a habit of Saul. That David starts getting praise. Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his 10,000. And it made Saul enraged because he is a man that demands the praise comes to him. Always taking the credit for things that he did not know. Do you know people like that? Maybe you work with them and they're always taking the credit for stuff they did not do or at your house your spouse or your kids are taking credit for things that they did not do, right? It starts to annoy people that actually deserve the credit like me, right? That's what happens. Saul's that dude, okay? So, yes, just like all of us at some point, I have this saying, it is amazing what a man can accomplish if he does not care who gets the credit. 
Like the best kind of managers and the best kind of people are those that actually give credit that they could take to other people because it doesn't matter to them. They have a higher goal, not me getting the praise, but the kingdom being built. And I could care less who gets the praise. Let them have it if it furthers the kingdom and saves the people. That's the kind of people. So what we're going to see with Saul is this. He's gifted. He's a great warrior. But he's not faithful. He's not a faithful man. The elders, we've been tossing around this term, I stole it from Eugene Peterson. But it's this, that the Christian faith is a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a sprint. It's not like, okay, I got somewhere. The Christian faith is being faithful, a long obedience in the same direction. God has called me to this. And I'm going to faithfully, day after day, move forward. Saul's not that kind of guy. He wants the praise. He wants it now. And so now Israel, it says, is a stench to the Philistines. So the surrounding nations are looking in, the Moabites and the Amorites, and they're like, whoa. That's an offensive move. They're not playing defense anymore, trying to just ward off the Philistines. They've attacked the Philistines. Wow, they are a stench. I love that. Do you know that sometimes you should stink as a Christian? You should. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 through 16. He says this about himself. He says, I'm like a, a processional And to some, I am the sweet aroma of Christ and life to those that are being saved. But to those that are not, I'm death to death. And what he was referring to there was in Rome, if you know Roman history, if a general had a massive victory, when that general came back to Rome, they would give him a triumphant entry where he would literally go through the entire city of Rome with his army and they would just be incense burning, and it would be the smell to the Roman people. Victory, the incense, the horses, the men. Victory, yes, life. But then behind them, as they headed to the Circus Maximus, was all the captives. And to them, that same exact smell was not life. It was they knew it was going to happen. They're going to be fed to wild beasts in the Circus Maximus, that it was death to them. So Paul is saying, our life to some is going to be this sweet aroma of life. And that same life, same procession, if you would, to other people, they're going to be like, dude, you stink. Haven't you noticed that? So a couple of years ago, I had this guy coming and he wanted to be baptized. And so I said, sure, let's, let's you know, we'll have a baptism next week. It'll be all heated up. He's like, no, I want to be baptized in the river. And it was like March or something. I'm like, okay, well, let's go do it. So on the way over there, we're driving over there and I'm talking to him. And he's like, man, I've just had to, had to leave all my friends. They don't like me anymore. They think I'm a holy roller and I don't do the old stuff I used to do. And I had to break with them. I'm like, hey, man, sometimes you stink. Sometimes the Christian life stinks to people, right? He's like, yeah, I think that's what's happening. So we get down there and we, we get in the water and he was freezing. Like I almost sprinkled him instead. I said, no, I don't think God cares. I'm just gonna sprinkle you. But he wanted full immersion. I'm like, okay, let's go. You're gonna get it worse than me. So we get in as we're going in, like these people just kind of gathered around and they watched us and they watched him baptized and they're cheering him on. I said, look at that. To them, 
man, you're a sweet aroma of a decision. And then the next week he had with him a couple of buddies and they're like, something's happened with Dan. We can't figure it out, but it's awesome. He's a nice guy now. Like we like him now. We want what he has. And they're like, we want to be baptized. I'm like, well, there's a good hot tub. No, he got baptized in the river. I'm like, dang, what have I done? It's going to be in the river for all you guys, huh? That's life, isn't it? Some say, I love how you live your life. And then the exact same life to other people is, you're a stench. It's a good way to evaluate your Christian walk. To some, they're going to love it, and it's going to be a sweet aroma of life. And to others, I think when you have both of those, you're probably walking out the faith correctly. So now Israel stinks to the Philistines, and here's what happens. Verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. It's on. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and the people followed him trembling. Number two thing that's revealed in him is he plays it safe. Here's what I mean. After that battle, Saul, verse four, calls everyone out to join him at Gilgal. Now, I know you probably don't understand the geography of Israel, so let me explain it. It would be like Jonathan having a battle in Coos Bay and winning there, and then Saul being like, okay, army, come join me in Dallas, Texas. Like, what? Why way over there? So what Saul had just done was, instead of holding that high ground, that Jonathan had just taken. He went backwards quite a ways and gave up probably the best weapon he had. And we'll find that pretty soon. Because if you know the geography of Israel, the Philistines were down in this big flat plain. That's where they were at. Then there, it was called a Shephelah. And then there is this, just, it, it, it comes straight out, up. And then right up here is where Israel was at. So the battle was right here on this high ground. Saul backs way up. What's the one thing you want to hold when you're in a battle? The high ground, because chariots trying to make their way up, man, stuff falls a lot harder and faster going downhill. So when he called the army, instead of like saying, we're going to stand right here watching these chariots come up. We're going to stand right here so that we have the best possible way to defeat them. He said, "Uh uh-oh, let's play it safe and move way back. So now they're going to get up on top and it's going to be a disadvantage to us. So the people knew this. They saw this. They saw, "Uh uh-oh. And how do they respond? They hid in tombs. What's one place I would never hide? A tomb, right? Have you seen, remember that old reality TV show called Fear? Like that was one of the worst things they could do. Okay, you're gonna stay a night in a coffin with another dead body. Yeah, you know, no thanks. I don't care if it's a million bucks, right? That's how terrified they are. They are standing and hiding in tombs. They are desperate because the Philistines are pushing all the chips in. 
all their chariots, all their horsemen, people like the sea, right? Because the, they, they know this about Israel. Israel has had two victories in a row. They beat the snake king and they had just defeated their garrison at Geba. And so now they're like, we have to crush this now. If we don't crush this now, they're gonna get momentum and they're gonna take us. But Saul, instead of saying, all right, let's stay here, let's stand our ground, let's be bold for God, he backs up. And the people respond with fear. Because have you noticed something about leaders? When leaders are afraid, what happens? Fear goes viral. And so this fear, it just goes viral. Like right now, if you're reading a lot about the pandemic, they're calling this other side of it, it's called the pandemic of panic. It's in like every New York Times, Liberal, and Washington Post, you name it, where they're saying that people's fear of the pandemic is now just about equal to the pandemic in what it is causing because fear Fear is bad. It amplifies everything negative. That's what the Bible says, 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and soundness of mind. That does not mean you're stupid. Doesn't mean you go play football on Interstate 5, right? Doesn't mean you lick the elevator buttons or something. You're not being stupid, but you realize fear doesn't help. Fear doesn't help. So Saul's crew at the end of this, they're trembling because he played it safe. The opposite of what he wanted to see happen. Hey, we're moving back to just be protected. The opposite of what he wanted to happen happens because he tried to play it safe. I don't think in the Christian walk we're supposed to play things safe. I think we're supposed to be bold in our proclamation that Jesus is king and are living out the faith. We're supposed to keep the high ground, not retreat, not move back. No, I'm keeping the high ground right here. So here's what happens, verse eight. And he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Mm. It's so good. <laughs> Samuel knows, or Saul knows, he is not supposed to offer this offering, but he does. And the smoking gun is there or the smoking sacrifice when Samuel shows up and Saul just goes out to Samuel like, hey man, what's up? How you doing, bro? It's all good. Like, have you ever noticed with your kids 
when they've done something they should not do and you get home, they're like, hey, dad, how are you, man? How was your day, dad? How was work, dad? Oh, I love you so much, dad. What did you do? What did you break? Were you using my chainsaw? Myron, did you drive the car? Right? I just start worrying because I know like that's <laughs> like, what did you do? You've done something wrong. So here's what he did wrong. Number one, right? Number three, actually. So here's what we find him with power. He plays it safe. He wants the praise. Number three, he disobeys God. He oversteps the God-given authority of a king. So in the Old Testament, you have these different offices and each office had with it what you were to do. It was like separation of power today. It was prophets and priests and kings. And kings were not to offer sacrifices. That was the priest's jobs, the Levite's job. So he knows, I'm not supposed to do this. Samuel's supposed to do this, but he disobeys God. He's impatient. Have you noticed when you get impatient, bad things happen? Like it's just, and yet we're still impatient. Haste almost always leads to waste, right? I've been guilty of this. I remember when I wanted to start a church, I was like, I want to start a church. I want to start one now. Come on, God, let's do this. And my wife had one stipulation for me. Don't move me somewhere cold. And then I got a call from a guy in Albany, New York, Rick Cohen. And he said, hey, there's a church open up here. I said, where's it at? He said, it's in Burlington, Vermont. I said, Burlington, Vermont? Yeah, I said, I'll take it, man, I'm doing it. Man, I'm so glad God didn't let me do that. I'd be stuck up there freezing with Bernie Sanders. How miserable, right? Like, oh man, golly. Look out, impatience, okay? So he's disobeying God. The lesson from this is simple. It's Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait on the Lord shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. You guys want that? Want vision like an eagle? You get weary and faint of life? Man, wait on the Lord. He didn't. So number three, power enables him now to disobey God. Number four, he blames others. Samuel calls him, and what does he say? Well, I had to because the people were scattering. I can see Samuel like, and? And you were late. And the Philistines were really close. And I didn't seek God's favor yet. He throws in a little religion in there, right? Like I had to do this because I really wanted God's favor, right? Okay. And so I, I forced myself. Like I had to grab my arm and like I'm forcing myself. It's just so classic and childish. This is like kindergarten, right? Total kindergarten stuff. Big lesson here. There are echoes in this of Genesis 3, is there not? Blaming others. When Adam is caught in his junk, what does he do? 
Does he say, I blew it, man, I shouldn't have eaten that, I knew better. No, what does he say? It was the woman you gave me. Like in eight words, he blames his wife and God. Like it's a brilliant sentence. You're like, wow, right? God, you made her and she is defective. So fix it. I'll be over here eating an orange, right? Like, wow, dude. And men since Adam have fallen in this trap of blaming others and making excuses. Like how many times do we have to do this? Over and over and over. I tell my kids, if you get good at making excuses, it'll all be, all, it will be the only thing you're good at, right? And you, you ask kids like, what happened? What happened? And it's always, well, she or he, right? There's always somebody else that they're blaming. There's always some reason why they had to do what They were forced to do it. I've sat with kids like teens that smoke marijuana and their parents want me to talk to them. I'm like, dude, what happened? I had to. So they forced you to? Yeah. So they put like a joint in your mouth and gave you CPR? Like, how did they force you to do this? And what I always tell them is this. No, you did what you most wanted to do in those circumstances. You did what you most wanted to do in those circumstances. If you added them up exactly the same way again, you'd do the same thing. Because everyone does what they most want to do in that situation. And when you learn that lesson, it's really good. When you learn that lesson, what can happen is God can change you. You can be like, man, I don't want that to be my desire. I don't want to do that again. I see what's in me. God changed me. I don't want to be that kind of person. And you have that moment of honesty. I'm waiting for one of my kids, when they get busted in their junk, to just say, when I say, why'd you do that? because I'm a sinner. I'll be like, okay, free car. I don't care what you get. You are amazing. You got it. Praise God, right? If Saul would have just said, I blew it, I'm a sinner. I think things would have gone very differently here. But he blames shifts and makes excuses. Just absolutely childish. So, number five, he trusts in chariots. Here's what I mean by that. So the ring, the power is revealing, hey, He wants the praise, he plays it safe, he disobeys God, he blames others, and he trusts in chariots. If you remember chapter 12, Samuel gives a sermon. It's the longest recorded message of Samuel in the Bible. And his message is really simple. God saves you and you keep forgetting. And it's not a king that's gonna save you, it's God that saves you. That's really the whole message. And he goes to the book of Judges and just look at Judges. You sinned, you blew it. The moment you repented and you prayed, God showed up and he saved you. That God does it. It's not about numbers. So Saul is freaking out because his army is getting smaller and smaller. But all he had to do was remember one story, the story of Gideon, who started out with a massive army, 33,000 people. And what did God say? Too many. And so God cuts it to 11,000. And what does God say? Too many. And he's like, there's 135,000 Midianites out there. 11,000 is not too many. No, it's too many. And so God cuts it down one more to 300 and a mighty victory. And God doesn't need numbers. But you see in the heart of Saul, he's trusting in chariots, not in God. He wants big numbers. And he acts like this. He acts like this. He goes, you know, I forced myself. Like I had nothing else I could do. Really? 
No other way of getting God's favor like praying or fasting or reading scripture or training your army. There's nothing else you could do. You're so fixated on losing people that you act like, this is the only thing I could do. No, it's not. There's always options. That with every temptation, every problem, God always provides us a way out. It's just, will he take it? And he didn't. So this is what power is revealing about Saul. That mm, he's gifted, but he's just not faithful. So here's the fallout of it. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of Yahweh your God with which he commanded you. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What a loss. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Right, so huge loss here. When Adam sinned, he lost the Garden of Eden. Big, big loss. And Samuel just cuts through it all and just says, you have been a fool. And because you've been a fool, you now have lost the kingdom. Even though you and I are under the covenant of grace, please know this. It does not mean there's not consequences for our disobedience. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 25 through 27, he says, I beat my body into subjection. I keep my eyes on the prize. I don't zigzag around lest I be disqualified. You know any person that has sinned in ministry and now they're disqualified from it? Yeah, every, every week you read about it in a paper because a pastor has done something that disqualifies them. And there's loss, there's loss. So he loses his army. I can see kind of why he freaks out. It went from about... 3,000 people, now it's been whittled down to 600. A lot smaller. So he's lost power. And so with that, verse 16. Oh, I need to back up. Verse 14. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. He'd lost that many. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah in the land of Shua, Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zebium toward the wilderness. So the results are now, there's these raiders, right? The word there is actually, it's the word, it's Hamashit, which is the Hebrew word for destroyer. It's often used of the devil. So the Philistines are now sending out these destroyers because they realize he's backed off, he's not being bold, and they just start pillaging the land, taking food, probably taking slaves, burning and pillaging 
because of Saul's inactivity, because of Saul's sinfulness now, it's affecting everybody else. That when leaders don't do what God wants to do, do people suffer? Oh my goodness, right? We're still picking up some of the damage from what a leader did in a church 15 years ago in our, in, in our city. I still have conversations with people. Oh, be oh so careful, right? So they had the upper hand. They had the momentum. They had two in a row. They could have kept going. The Philistines were on their heels, but then they go backwards. And this is how this chapter ends. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. Is that a bummer? For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears, but every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines, Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshare and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the people of Michmash. How bad is that? How bad is this situation? Tiny army, bleak. It's 180 degrees away from chapter 12. 180 degrees. Economic oppression. An arm, an arm embargo against them, right? They can't make anything. They're extorting them. The, the price that they are charging to sharpen their axes would be equivalent to 100 bucks today. Like it's like outrageous. They have predator drones. Israel has slingshots. Like this is not going to be pretty. But here's a lesson God wants to give them again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the whole lesson. I don't need predator drones. I don't need swords because salvation belongs to me. Remember Gideon, remember Samson, remember Ehud, remember Moses. Moses took on the most powerful empire known with a staff and God won. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do we believe that? Because we can fall into the same trap of Saul. We can look at all the Philistines that are against us today. The government, economy, conspiracy theories, health, pandemic, houses, inflation, jobs, drugs, whatever it is. And we can just become overwhelmed by it, full of fear, full of awe. And then we start making excuses. Well, because of the way things are, I had to steal that from my company. I had to lie there. We'll do the same exact thing. We're no different than Saul. Unless we learn this lesson. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What am I worried about? One with him will chase a thousand. What am I worried about? Have I prayed? Have I sought his face? Have I gotten counsel from people? Have I waited on him? Have I done those things? Because those are the antidote to fear, the antidote to worry. Those are what remind us salvation comes from the Lord. That's the lesson of this chapter. And we have to continue to learn it because we're just like Saul. 
and he's been cast away. He's, he's lost the kingdom, right? And right now the new king is in kids ministry. How important is kids ministry? So important because the next king is in kids ministry right now. That's why it's so important. Like if we don't pour into this next generation, we're extinct. So the next king, David, he has warts. Do you know that? Guy made some huge mistakes. But here's something he always knew. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so I will pray and I will wait and I will seek his face. And he got that right. And God says, I'll keep him. Even with all his warts, even with all, his, all of his problems, which are much bigger in my head than Saul, but not to God. Because God wants us to continually look to him and say, salvation belongs to you. Do you guys know that? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Father, today, as we go from here, and I know that people are facing real problems today, and we can be overwhelmed by them, overwhelmed by the evil that we see in our community, overwhelmed by the evil we see in our own hearts, wondering how we'll be set free, wondering what tool to use. May we be a people who continually come back to praying and seeking your face and waiting on you, knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.